Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Malvin. For those who don't know me, I'm a birth worker, a life coach, hypnotist, and a former liberal feminist turned radical truth teller. On this podcast, I expose the forces at play attempting to control our minds and bodies, such as transgender ideology, pornography, prostitution, and so much more. Together, we'll untangle patriarchal lies as you listen to jaw-dropping interviews with women from around the world. Warning, while listening to this podcast, you might find yourself triggered or perhaps notice where you've been biting your tongue on the issues that matter most to you. In my coaching and hypnosis, I help women and men stop getting triggered by every single thing, cultivate resilience, stop unwanted behaviors, and increase self-confidence. You can book your first session at whosebodyisit.com, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. And I just want to say that it's because of your endless support that I'm able to interview amazing women, get their stories out, and produce regular episodes for you. So with that being said, please like, comment, and subscribe to my channel on YouTube. And if you're listening in, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And also consider making a financial contribution via the link in my show notes. You can also visit my activist sticker shop. My pro-woman stickers have the power to intercept transhumanist programming. So take a photo of your stickers out in the wild and tag me on Instagram at Whose Body Is It? Without further ado, let's get into this week's story. Samantha Berg has been in the feminist movement for 20 years as a writer, activist, and organizer. In her efforts to end the sexual exploitation of women, Sam saw that men who identified as women and even as, quote, sex workers were leading various movements to legalize commercial sex. So while organizing events focused on the Nordic model and other pro-women policies, Sam's activism was repeatedly threatened by TRAs hell-bent on stopping her from speaking and organizing without men. These TRAs use tactics like spamming women with pornography, sitting outside event hotels, and even making death threats. In this episode, you'll hear about some of the earliest battles between women's liberation groups and trans activists contextualizing the current fight for women's liberation and free speech. If you've been bewildered and outraged as to why men are so determined to keep women from educating ourselves and each other around the world, this episode is for you. Thank you, Sam, for taking the time to talk to me today about activism and your expertise, your history. Those who, who tuned in last week, the last thing that they've heard is my episode with Kay Yang and Amy Souza, who were uh, the organizers for the some of the two of the organizers for the NYC Speakers Corner event that Kelly J. Keene didn't even get to go to because it was so unsafe. Um, I know a lot of us are rattled, disturbed. Um, I wasn't on the ground there, but I'm from New York City. And I feel like disturbed from the footage as 
I imagine the women who were actually in person getting abused by those those men and that one Stonewall veteran who was being yelled at. I mean, just everyone involved, I'm sure, is like reeling from from that. So will you first just start off by telling everyone who you are and, and kind of um, how you came into this realm of uh, madness? <laughs> sure. It's a good way to put it these days. My name is Sam Berg. Um, sometimes go by Samantha, but usually Sam. And I am a writer and an event organizer. I've been organizing events and writing for about 20 years now on feminist issues. Most of that time spent working on pornography, prostitution, and human trafficking. I give anti-porn slideshows to inform women about the changing content of modern pornography, as well as working to fight back against the legalization of prostitution as it keeps popping up in various places. Um, I grew up in the New York City area, so lifelong liberal, all the good progressive stuff, pro-choice, volunteering for Planned Parenthood for years, all that greatness. But after a while, liberal feminism stopped working for me, and I became a radical feminist. And politically, that's more where I find my home these days. When was the first time like in your work that you were hitting resistance with the trans issue, or when did that kind of... Uh... It, it kind of coalesced with my prostitution activism, which I had a very long, serious history with writing a lot of articles and doing a lot of events, giving prostitution survivors a platform to speak, creating media opportunities for them and just getting their voices out. As part of my work doing that, I created a website called Genderberg, which had a forum board where before social media, before Facebook and Twitter, women needed to organize politically. And I was even though I was in liberal feminism and doing good pro-choice work and anti-war work, I wasn't seeing enough feminist movement against prostitution. In fact, a lot of feminists, myself included, when I was younger, believed that legalizing was truly the way to go. So as I started changing my mind on prostitution and pornography and getting more into that, the trans issue sort of popped up as part of that. I was invited in 2011 to give a keynote conference in Australia, in Perth. It was my first women-only event that I attended. And even though the prostitution and trafficking events I'd attended and organized were mostly women, there were still some clergymen or police officers or just venue workers around. Australia was the first time I went to women-only intentional space. And it was very radicalizing in a way I didn't expect, honestly. But when I went to Australia, the trans issue in 2011 had not become what it was now. However, Australian lesbians were still fighting a fight there. And I learned that in Australia, lesbians were meeting secretly underground because they were not allowed to meet without men. Any man who called himself a lesbian was de facto invited to any publicly announced lesbian event. And the women were not allowed to say, no men, just lesbians, come on. And they took this to court and the lesbians lost. And so that in 2011, lesbians have to secretly and by word of mouth and through underground networks, even just meet, seemed outrageous to me. Now, aside from that, the prostitution issue in New Zealand, which has legalized prostitution, they call it decriminalized, but it is the problems are there. Things are working as if it were legalization, no matter what you call it. There was a man named Georgina Beyer. He was 
raised through private schools in New Zealand, fairly privileged youth, um, did prostitution. You know, he called it sex work. He transitioned to a woman at the age of 27 and decided to take this wealth and privilege that he had and turn it into a run for parliament. So he did. He got into the New Zealand parliament saying, I'm a sex worker. I speak for sex workers. We want prostitution. Sex workers want to be sex workers. Everything about that I know about prostitution and the gendered nature of it was kicking against this. The idea that this man with this life who transitioned at 27 would dare to speak for something that affects vastly women and girls so much more prostitution. That was offensive to me. Strangely enough, he's since changed his mind and realized that the New Zealand model is really not working for anybody's benefit, except perhaps the pimps and traffickers. But that's not as widely presented around the world as sort of the freak show of this transgender identified man calling himself a hooker, playing up to every stereotype about gay men and women about that. You know, nothing good there. So yeah, Georgina Byer was a real click moment mm. for me. And then I started putting together that around the world, sex worker organizations were called sex worker organizations trying to legalize. These were very dominantly run by transgender identified men. And I saw it in Mexico and Norway and Korea. It's not just that these men are a part of sex worker organizations. They are very often the leaders, the media spokesperson. Again, I think there's something to the media freak show about it. And uh, watching that happen, I mean, how could such an incredibly small minority of prostitutes get so much microphone airtime around the world that they are the leaders of this push to legalize? It all was seeming kind of funky to me. And I did a lot of reading up and research into that and what was going on. And I had to change my mind. I was never fully on board with trans women or women, but I was a good progressive. And I tried to see if I could make that work. But you just, you can't circle a square. It's just not going to work. And it reminds me of um, like Kaisa's story a little bit, like being on the ground and seeing like the reality of porn and prostitution and helping women exit, like it really doesn't leave much space for postmodern queer theory, la la abstraction, which is what is an unusual experience to have nowadays. Because like, mm -hmm. I think of like um, our mutual friend Dippity talking about how few, uh, how few organizations or even are left in the U.S. to help women exit prostitution so if you just take that in mind okay maybe there are like three left in 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 the u.s alone what are the odds that that's a track like a career track for uh high school students college students you're like i want to be someone that helps women exit porn and prostitution like it's literally not a thing it's not a it's not well it's a thing but it's not a desirable um or socially acceptable as progressive because we have to assume that Anyone who would want to do that must be some kind of uh, have have some kind of savior complex or uh, whatnot. So I, I I imagine that your experience in the material world um, was a huge part of that of that click. I I, I, I want to mention this because you're also from New York City. Like I went to high school with a woman who now her job. I mean I think she's like a 
maybe a trained social worker, her job is to put trans identified men in women's prison, get them transferred to the women's prison um, at Rikers. I mean, so like there you have someone who's like on the material, you know, playing like doing social work, like seeing like horrendous things happen. And she even is captured by this and like brags about like she thinks she's really doing God's work. I think a key switch that switched me over from being a liberal to being a radical is a switch in perspective from focusing on the victim to focusing on the perpetrator. And I feel like your friend is still stuck in focusing on the mm -hmm. victim mode. Um, the proposal to solve the many problems of prostitution that I ascribe to is the Nordic model. It's also called the equality model. But in a nutshell, it understands that it is not a crime to be so poor and desperate that you'll do anything you have to do for money. But it is a crime to prey upon vulnerable people to seek to hurt them because you know you can get away with it. And so in the Nordic countries, you know, Sweden, Finland, Scandinavia countries, as well as places like France and Israel, they have implemented focusing on the demand instead of the supply, focusing on men's desires to pay for sex instead of any poverty-stricken person's desire to not be suffering the effects of poverty or drug addiction, as you will. And I think this is where the radicalism comes in because with transgender issues, I think there's the pitying of these men as victims and many of them are. And I do feel for people who aren't comfortable in their skin and people who are confused about who they are and what they wanna be, but telling somebody that they can change their sex, that doesn't seem like a compassion to me. That's, that's something we tell children it's going to be okay. It's all fine. We, we lie to children politely because we know they can't understand. If you respect someone, an adult, as your equal, as your peer, you won't patronize them. You won't lie to them. I, I've had, I live in Portland. Of course, I know many transgender people, but I will not call them men or women contrary to what they are because my integrity demands it. And if I respect someone, I'm going to tell them my truth. And my truth is, as much as you want me to see you as a woman, I do not see you as a woman. I, I can't because what I see is a man and I, I won't lie to you or to myself about it. Um, I did work for several years in a nonprofit with a man who was ex-military in his 60s. And after I'd worked with him for about five years, he decided to come out as transgender. And that was very strange and eye-opening. And this was like 2012, maybe 2011, 2012 that this happened. And the first day he came into work, he had a platinum blonde wig with Shirley Temple curls. It was very anachronistic and strange. And the whole tights and high heels. Women in Portland, Oregon, who work for nonprofits do not wear pantyhose and high heels and power suits. You know, we dress like women in Portland who work in nonprofits. And that's not that. So, and then the most offensive thing was he started talking like this. And every time he was talking to us, it was like this. It felt like someone making fun of my people. <laughs> you know, it was quickly dropped. He only did that for a few days, but he continued to wear the pantyhose and the dress and the whole thing. And while I never used the female pronouns because I won't be made a liar, you know, I would just use his name when addressing him. I didn't have a problem with him. I felt sorry for him. I think I have the same pity for confused people 
than anyone has. But I, I wouldn't participate in a lie. And to ask me to do that is abusive. And to ask me to not see the truth I see in front of me feels like gaslighting. And, you know, you have to hold on to the truth because what else do you really have? Oh, I completely agree. I, and it's scary. And it's like, it's also scary if this if this man were your boss or you think you're getting a massage from a woman and you walk in and there's a man. Yeah. Portland's especially bad with it. As you know, we've been dealing with it. You can't <clears throat> use single women only services here in Portland. Even our domestic violence shelters and our rape crisis shelters have been taken over by transgender politics. And, uh, you know, it's the women who suffer the most women who need those services the most suffer the most. So you were so you were organizing in Portland. You've been seeing like this was popping up for you in you know 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, when did it really start getting in the way of you doing your work? And yeah, you know, what like what was the frequency of events you were organizing? You so you, you said you were doing slideshows uh, exposing women to the harms of porn. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what was the frequency? Like, what was your activism kind of like life at that point versus like what, what it is now? Sure. In the early 2000s, it was easier for me to get traction, especially as the term prostitution was sort of giving way to human trafficking, which people liked more. <clears throat> I prefer prostitution. It really is speaking to what I am talking about. I'm not talking about labor trafficking or other kinds. I'm specifically talking about the male sexual abuse of women and the economic coercion of poor women. Um, but when it started interfering with my ability to organize events, really ramped up in 2012. So I went to Australia in 2011. And that inspired me to create Women Only Space here in Portland when I got back. So the following summer, 2012, I held a, I directed a conference called Rad Femme Reboot, where we invited women from all over the world. And about 70 women came. We had them from France and Scotland and a couple from Australia. They just came from everywhere. It was beautiful. We had speakers like Lee Keith and Kathleen Berry, who was one of the earliest writers about prostitution as a human rights violation of women back in the 70s. And as we started organizing this and feeling great about it, we put an events page up on Facebook. We started a website. Transgender activists found out that we were just having this women-only meeting. It wasn't about transgender issues. It was about prostitution and domestic violence and abortion and feminist women's issues. But the idea that we were asking men not to come was the offense. And so we started getting threats. They would flood the Facebook event page with threats and pornography to try and freak the women there out and just hurt them the way they could. We put up a list of local hotels that women could stay at on the website. And the men who became Antifa, but who were then just sort of men in Portland who were angry and fighting against various systems, whether that's environmental issues or police brutality. You know, some of these issues are very good issues to fight against. The way they're doing it's not the best way to do it, but they're good issues to work against. Well, they decided that our conference was the most offensive thing happening in Portland. And they instructed people to go and sit at the hotels that we had recommended, find the quote, dikey looking women and then follow them back to the venue. And then there's these chilling words of, then we'll have them all. There were bomb threats. Three weeks before the event that I put on in 2012, 
transgender activists threw a Molotov cocktail into a Wells Fargo bank in North Portland, saying that it was because Wells Fargo promotes prisons and they were protesting prisons in the name of transgender people. But while they did that, they were threatening my event. So it, the threats were coming fast and they were getting more real. Uh, Lear Keith was directly threatened. They were remarking on times she's been assaulted while speaking in public in the past to threaten her like, this time, you're not going to walk away. This time when we get you, you're not going to speak again. When it started getting so specific about people and times and ways, I felt compelled to call the police and report what was happening and the ongoing threats that were escalating. Um, three days before my event, Rad Fen Reboot, someone dumped used kitty litter right outside my, my front door on my path, which felt just to me like a, we know where you live and we, we were telling you that we're not afraid to go where you live and show you what we think of you. I was so scared for my cats. <laughs> I didn't know, you know, I kept them in. I was like, just worried because clearly these are people who are not dealing with the full deck and they have this narcissistic rage that just puts mm -hmm. all reason out of them and the target of their aggression. So frequently women, the target of these narcissist rage um, just had me scared, but I was going to keep doing it. I had booked flights. I had made these plans. They threatened me venue but it wasn't significant and the conference i'm so happy to say it went off just fine um leah keith was escorted in and out of the venue with security um because i no longer felt safe asking women to walk to the venue mm. uh, we spent a good chunk of money to per to rent a cargo van and we picked every woman who was attending that conference up from wherever she was staying and you know it's those financial hits i don't know that people talk about but when you're an event organizer and you're the one doing the budget and you're the one who takes these little donations, you know, the prostitution industry is billions of dollars. But radical feminists, we really got to make do with the crumbs we've got. And having to spend over $1,000 on a cargo van because people weren't safe is the kind of event organizing expense I'd never have to spend before. It offends me that I had to spend precious resources on a cargo van because these men were threatening to hit women entering the venue. So that was 2012. It happened. I think the transgender activists were really upset that we actually still pulled off our Portland event because the next year I did another event. There was a span of about 10 years where I pulled off 15 events. Now, sometimes I was like the key director really pulling all the strings, like the Portland events. Other times I was more of a part of a team and helping someone else in their city. You know, the, the person in the city where you live in, you're going to get the brunt mm -hmm. of it because you live there. And so in various degrees, I was helping out with 15 events over 10 years. And in 2013, it looks like transgender activists were not going to let another repeat of Portland happen in Toronto. Because even though we kept the venue secret until 24 hours before, even though we vetted all the women, we had conversations with them. We tried to make sure nobody was trying to fraudulently get into our event and hurt women there. They still did. They sent a woman in. And as soon as we released where the venue in Toronto was happening, a coordinated campaign clicked into place where hundreds of emails were flooding the venue that we had rented. It was this place called Beaver Hall we were going to be at. 
And they just started saying, we're going to hurt anyone comes in and out of your building. We're going to smash the windows in. They freaked them out so much that, of course, at the last minute, they pulled the venue. So I, as an event organizer, just had to scramble and redo things. And we had to send somebody to the venue to catch women who were going there and make sure they were okay and switch operations. This wasn't enough for the transgender activists. They found out where the new venue was and sent a group of people to get as close as the Toronto legal limit would let them get, which I think was a thousand meters. So they met at this little park right down the block from the house, the private house that I had rented. And they met down there to, with bullhorns and cameras and a whole event. And their whole pitch to the local media was, these gender fascists are here to plot the murders of transgender people and sex workers. These evil, evil women are meeting in a house and they want to murder sex workers and trans people. So we have to stop them by any means necessary. These fascists must be stopped. I never had to organize an event before that where I had to post women at the windows and give everybody instructions. Like if you hear something, if you hear broken glass, if you hear anything, everybody turn your cameras on immediately, start collecting evidence. It was like being in a siege situation, knowing that they were right there, so antagonistic. And the the lengths that they went to to stalk us and track us down. Just, you know, what, 20 something women in a, a private residence in Toronto. This was the biggest threat to both prostitutes and transgender people in Toronto. I've seen the police reports. I promise you, feminists are not the biggest threats to prostitutes, not even close. So this was terrifying in a lot of ways. Again, we had to call the police. Again, it was a whole show. And this time, because of the aggravated nature of the threats, we started getting more media. And that was when things, I think, started to change in the U.S. Now, 2013, the same time in the U.K., women who were trying to organize women-only events in the U.K. were meeting the same resistance, um, not being allowed to hold the venues that they had rented, transgender activists threatening them. So this is going on simultaneously on both sides around the world here. Well, we did hold our event. It did happen. But more people noticed and a group of 27 elder feminists, mostly radical, but not all. They wrote a paper called Forbidden Discourse. And it was essentially one of the opening salvos of this, hey, trans, what is going on? Like, what is going on when women cannot meet to discuss our own issues without you threatening to rape them to death and slit their throats and hurt their cats? You know, what's going on with that? We have some things to say. More importantly, we got the notice of a journalist in New York named Michelle Goldberg. She wanted to write an article for New Yorker magazine because this still doesn't stop me from organizing all of this because I'm very obstinate. <laughs> and in 2014, we did another event back on my home ground, back here in Portland, and that was called Rad Femmes Respond. And the key change here was we weren't going to hide anymore. We weren't going to do secret venues. We weren't going to vet. We were going to have an open event. If the transgender problem is that they weren't invited, we invited them. Come on, let's listen. Let's talk. Let's dialogue. Well, it turns out dialogue was not on the menu because the same threats that we always got when we were being, you know, quote, exclusionary. We kept getting those same threats. 
for the next conference when they were invited. But Michelle Goldberg, the journalist, was there from the ground floor. And she came and she attended that event. And she wrote an article about it called, What is a Woman for New Yorker? And that was in 2014. And that was a pretty big article at the time. Again, 2014, it's hard to explain how different the climate was on these things. There was absolutely no questioning of transgender politics. Like, at least now I'm seeing like there's JK Rowling, there's a couple things happening. You know, in 2014, you were just the enemy, capital E at this point. And so that that article came out at all, many people have told me that it was reading that article from Michelle Goldberg that made them first really raise an eyebrow and go, what? Mm. What? Why can't women meet? What's going on here? What is happening with this thing that I thought was all right and now is turning out to very much not be okay? So that was helpful. And I have to say as well, in 2014, transgender activists did succeed in having the venue that I had rented rescind. It was the same venue we'd held our event in in 2012. So they knew us. They knew we were okay. But there was a, it was the Quakers, it was a Quaker meeting house we were meeting in. And apparently one of the Quakers there was transgender and said that radical feminists are the biggest danger to transgender people in the world. They are more responsible for transgender deaths than anyone else. And they should not be allowed to rent this venue. So they didn't. Now, I was getting smart at this point. I'd had a backup because I knew they were going to try and get the venue squashed because they I've been catching on to their tactics. So I had the Multnomah County Library as a backup. They librarians are really into free speech. And they were very serious about letting my event happen at the downtown library. Um, they hired extra security to meet the extra threats that the library was getting over this event to make sure it happened. And the manager of the library came that whole day and he sat and made sure that we were okay it was very tense very uncomfortable lots of threats swirling around but in the end once again even though we had to change venue at the last minute we we pulled it off wow. and we had it and it was recorded and it went through and so it's very challenging to keep organizing under this climate and i feel for folks like you know kelly j keen who are doing this and as most of your listeners will know, um, decided not to have her Portland event, like to speak in places that were not here. And I'll tell you, as someone on the ground here, I understand because mm -hmm. I have myself have had to feel compelled to back off organizing locally because I don't want something to happen to either me, my husband or my cats. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's I think insane. It's totally insane. And I think um, <laughs> people who are new to this and I'm only like three years in and I feel still totally brand new. Like I'm constantly learning about so many things, uh, you know, related to this issue. And I think in my three years, seeing what happened in New York, that felt like insane. Um, but what you've described is comparable or worse. I mean, you've described stalking, you've described death threats, you've described, I think, I don't know if you mentioned doxing, but I know doxing is in there. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. if they're putting cat litter, I, they know where you live. So that there you go. Um, I mean, it's really, really bad. So on uh, in some ways, so many more people are talking about what's going on. There isn't just like one enemy anymore. 
because consciousness is being raised on on what the hell is going on but mm-hmm. um the threats don't seem to let up it's weird it, you mentioned the um your former coworker who was ex-military, that's something that's come up a lot on the podcast and like through Jennifer Billick's work is the the overlap of uh, these these trans-identified um, men having like a military background and then the militant nature of how they try to implement this ideology, which is like a militant takeover. What's his name? Rachel Levine mm-hmm. comes to mind. Uh, James Pritzker. I mean, a lot of them have these like military background so that's that that's right on schedule what do you Um, think is that what do you think's going on behind that if you could just take a a guess um i would say like probably i would say maybe it's a reaction to coming from families that um don't allow space for expression outside of gender stereotypes traumatizing experiences make us want to dissociate make us want can make us want to dissociate can make us want to leave our bodies um so i imagine that might be part of it wanting to stay in like a fantasy world rather than deal with the reality of what you've seen and what you've been a part of or what you you wish you had done or hadn't done or whatever and then I would go as far as to say that if you're stationed in a remote land, like you're probably away from your wife, you're probably, you know, if you're not like using prostitutes in that land, you're probably consuming a lot of porn. And we know the role of porn uh, in all of this. So I think about the dissociation. It's something that keeps coming up for me, not just with men who wish they were women, but women who wish they were men. And I tie this back into my work against prostitution. Because I've watched many years as women adopt false personas. So it's almost like the false persona takes the men's abuse. Like it's not really them getting called names. It's not really them getting fingers jammed in them on that strip club floor. It's Lucky. It's this girl Bunny. It's this girl Jasmine. It's this alternative persona that they have made to disassociate, to split off what is happening and make it some other girls and not hers. And I, I wonder sometimes how much that plays into even transgender thought, where you so desperately wish that you weren't the person being targeted for being gay, for being effeminate in a climate that does not have any tolerance for men who are effeminate. And how much you have to disassociate and become another person to survive that psychic onslaught. So for me, I see that in prostitution all the time. Like, oh, yeah, it wasn't me that that happened right. to. It was my stripper persona that happened to. Right. Yeah. That totally makes sense. And and I and if they're and if they're the kind of AGP that likes to be, you know, their version of woman is one who gets dominated, like that escape, like going from being the the dominator, like the oppressor, the depending on like in their own comment, the actual person that kills other people to being the one who's like totally um well it's a fake vulnerability but the one who's vulnerable the one who gets to be dominated the one who gets to be punished i spoke to an ex-dominatrix i interviewed her for the podcast roxy who talked about um so she was doing a lot of online um 
she was making uh, pornography online and then also seeing some men in, in person during all the George Floyd stuff. And mm-hmm. there was a huge uptick in men wanting to be punished for like their white, like their white privilege. And so they would, you know, it's it just this, this idea of like wanting to be dominated, but actually you're the one in control, right? You're the one paying this woman. You're the one buying her, renting her for this amount of time. So with these ex-military trans-identified men, I also just think of like, oh, this is just another extension of control. This is just a like an escape, but it's also another way to... um kind of very strategically manipulating control. I think the capitalism, which is such a big word to use in this context, but I think it is the key through these things, whether it's paying a dominatrix or paying to purchase clothing and lipstick and makeup and deciding that the things you can purchase are what make you a woman, whereas the things you cannot purchase are, don't make you a woman. And I feel like um, Barbara Ehrenreich, who just died recently, she had a wonderful quote that I've said many times where she said, you know, BDSM without capitalism, it's just naked people slapping each other. Mm. You have to get the whips and the leather and the tools and the collar and the whole thing. It's a very capitalist enterprise. And I think about this with transgender. We're told it's a genuine, authentic, from their heart kind of thing, that you shouldn't have to purchase things that are your authentic self. You know, that's not actually how you get authenticity. And I think about that with BDSM and it's not as much fun without the costumes and surely a man just saying, well, I'm a woman. It's not as much fun without all the accoutrements. And and this ties into prostitution as well as what you have a right to buy and who has a right to buy and what that means. Um, When I think of the, the angle of pornography and the role it's had on this, I think you can look at average ordinary pornography and see how much men get off on humiliation. And I don't think that's something we talk about the violence of porn because it's so obvious, the violence of it. But I'd like to stick on that sense of humiliation and what it is about men who get turned on by humiliation. It's not a small thing because I see the titles of these porn films. You know, it's not like there's a sea of happy, fun, good feelings and then a little bit of humiliation. It's capital H humiliation the whole way with a little bit of maybe not. And I think about that dominatrix and the men who would pay her. You know, these are men who want to be humiliated. They want to be put in silly outfits and called names and called little stupid pussy boys and all this stuff that they want to do. Now, not all trans gender identified men are the same. I do believe that there's something going on with gay men being told they're not real men. That's Mm -hmm. connected. But for these men who are straight men who have humiliation fetishes, whether born out through pornography you know, fostered by it, or they just brought it to it because apparently this is a thing with guys. That sense of humiliation, it's the same men who use the dominatrices, except now they figured out a way to be humiliated 24 hours a day because there's nothing more humiliating than being a woman. So if humiliation is your thing, dressing up as a woman gets everybody looking at you like, Like you're being humiliated. You're forcing everybody around you to be a part of your sexual fetish. You don't even have to pay a dominatrix anymore because the women walking down the street are the ones who are curling their noses in disgust at your push-up bra and your bright pink lipstick and the intentional seeking of humiliation. You know, men who urinate themselves in public, similar kind of 
seeking humiliation, fostering the freak show. I would love to see us talk a little bit more about men and humiliation and how humiliating they think being a woman is, that this turns them on. Oh my gosh, thank you for articulating that. I love what you said, The um, that it's just a constant humiliation. Like they no longer have to pay for it for a short amount of time. They can just live. They can live the humiliation. And I think a lot of like, like sometimes I'll, I'll hear women be like, does he really think he looks good? Like he looks terrible. And it's like, that's kind of the point, like to your point, that's kind of, that's part of it that we all know that he looks like heinous. And so we're all in on it. And that's where the, the, like, what you're saying, the 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 fetishes and him getting aroused by the idea of us thinking like negative thoughts about him. Mm -hmm. essentially. And whether it's admitted or not, or whether it's on the surface or not. Right. I it's think we've seen enough of this behavior to know it is a very strong streak right. in this. You know, not the total thing, but it is I'd say absolutely a very strong streak. I think most of us, even the average layperson who is not a feminist or pays attention, is aware of what a dominatrix is. This is something that is in our culture. And not like a little niche thing, like a mainstream TV movies in our culture kind of thing. So then to not understand that translation of there's nothing more humiliating than being a woman. So many major religions have the humiliation of women as their major tenet. You know, Christianity with Eve. Um, there's that Jewish saying like, thank you, God, for not making me a woman. You know, so this is something that has been around in our culture a really long time. I think pornography has just given it this particular expression mm -hmm. at this point in time of the abject disgustness of being the she animal that is women. I wish men could even see us as human, but when I see these costumes they put on, I see she animals. I just see this as dressed up animals. Oh my gosh. I mean, there's, there are so many degrees of it. Like, uh, like I, th I keep thinking of, um, Anthony Martucci, the guy who uh, was featured in Coach, the Coach fashion show. He was the guy who's in a lot of the footage with the curly hair who's screaming at Gina, uh, saying these fists don't discriminate. So there you have like a definitely an androphile. Like you have a gay man who likes everyone to pretend that he's a woman. He goes by Amara and he's screaming at these women saying like, no man wants you. You know, and so there, there he's he's actually deluded to think that, or at least he thinks that he is the better version of a woman. And like by fashion standards, he is like he's emaciated. <laughs> he he he's like totally wan. Like he he could, you know, they could throw pretty much anything on him, and it just hangs because he's not a woman. Um, adult human female bodies don't look like that. Even the skinniest mm -hmm. models have curves i've done a lot of writing about pornography and analyzing it and looking at it um one of the persons i studied his writing was christopher kendall and he's a gay man who's done work into looking at gay pornography gay men's pornography and what those messages are and what that says about gay men and what we want to be and all that and one of the things i remember about it was very keenly in heterosexual porn you know who the alpha is and who the beta is because the man's the alpha and the woman's a beta. But when it comes to gay male porn, it's not always so clear. So when you've got two men in front of you, how do you tell who's the top and who's the bottom? Well, gay porn gives you the answer. 
very often it's racialized. Mm-hmm. The white person is on top and the racial minority is the bottom. Also, it's very sexualized. You know, the masculine man is the top and the feminine woman kind of like mimicking of heterosexual porn. But what I'd like to hold on to is that racialization, the way that racial minorities are always seen as the lesser, the female, the beta. And I don't know who this Anthony Martucci person is. I've not looked into him at all. But I will say, when you just tell me that name, Anthony Martucci, that sounds really Italian to me. And then I think it's interesting that his alter ego seems very Hispanic. His girl mode Mm. is a Hispanic name, but his man name is Italian. And I grew up in New York and you grew up in New York. And you know, in New York, like the world sees Italian New York men as practically the epitome of masculinity and maleness. They're all the stereotypes of New York. Yo, why do you live in New York? I got a pizza and I'm a guy from Italy. You know, like that's like the stereotype, even though New York is a beautifully global place where people from all over the world come, they somehow think we all speak like Italian Americans. But I think that's very interesting that that masculinity mm-hmm. of New York Italianness has to be discarded and that he picked up a Hispanic femaleness. There's something there. I would love people who dive more deeply into racial politics than I have to really unravel. That is so interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. And and I, I have no idea what his like racial ethnic background is, but but just based on the names alone. Yeah. Yeah. And, and whether or not like he is of Hispanic descent, he's certainly Im- leaned into that through the name choice because the last name that he chose was like Hernandez or something like Amara. Yeah, so I don't remember offhand, but it was very noticeably Hispanic to me yes oh my gosh that is so interesting i mean he honestly reminded me his attitude like like that that new york edge gone total like vitriol like reminded me of a lot of kids i went to high school with like well he he reminded me of them because also some of the people i went to high school with have like threatened to physically hurt me and so i'm like oh shit like i wonder if he did go to my high school (laughs) like it's like a little too close yeah, there's like leaning into that persona and that character that he seems to think will offer him or enhance whatever his, you know, agenda is or, or mask his agenda. Um, right. Which... And if I didn't know what I know from pornography, from looking at gay male pornography, you know, and just analyzing it with a cold eye and seeing what the racial messages are, I don't know that I would have made that connection. It would have just seemed like any other persona that anybody comes up for any reason. Although I have noticed, of course, the like many people, the strong streak of misogyny in drag queen names. This is another thing. I remember one was uh, years ago in the 90s. I'd seen one and I didn't have any feelings about drag queens in particular at all. But this one man was calling himself Yeasty McTwat. And I was like, yeah, I don't know about gay male and drag. I know that you need to shut the fuck up with that yeasty McTwat business, that that's so like offensive and not okay for you to mock women in this way and think that this is Mm -hmm. okay for you to do as a man to -hmm. say that. And, you know, you've seen all the other names and abortion, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. You know, the, the humiliation of women being Mm -hmm. the most hilarious thing in the world to these guys. Mm -hmm. And it's like the least female thing to do is to go to a protest and take your shirt off like i'm sorry what and and grope your breasts 
Like what women do we know who do who would ever do that? Like none. It's not a thing. It's not a thing. So these men have done the least female in their mimicry have done the least female thing, which is to threaten to hurt women with their shirts off, groping their synthetically enhanced breast tissue. Mm-hmm. It's nuts. And it's porny. It's, it's like, like such a circus. It's a total circus. And it was like porn. I mean, there was one guy who was just like jiggling his body. It was just like so a lot of these men were groping themselves in New York. I mean, this is, again, reported from like women on the ground. And that's just how it expresses itself here. I want to tie this in to like women all over the world. It's so easy to get caught in our Western perspective and looking at pornography because pornography gives you volumes and volumes of content to even opine on. But to be very serious about this for a second, what I've been trying to do in Portland, what I did for many years was organize educational workshops for women, women only workshops, education for prostitution, for abortion, for domestic violence, all of women's rights. This is not so different from what women in Afghanistan are trying to do, organize women's education about things that affect women. And they are violently, brutally knockdowns. It's not so different from what's happening in Iran. What we see the common thread is women being educated in the things men do not want them to know. In Afghanistan, it's as basic as reading and writing. But here, it's a little different. It it expresses itself differently in the United States because you can't stop women from reading and writing. But apparently, it's okay to stop them from organizing. It's okay to stop them from meeting. It's okay to shut down social media venues or any websites they have to organize and somehow think you're not like those men in Afghanistan. You're not like those men in Iran suppressing women's education. Because when I checked for my crime, what my transphobic crime was, was literally organizing opportunities for women's education. That's why I get death threats and rape threats. So what do I do now? <laughs> now yeah, that I don't tell organize us what events do. so much. <laughs> what do we do now, Sam? I'm scared. <laughs> now that I've put you in your freak corner there. Yeah. Um, so what do I do now? Well, I don't organize locally so much. It's just a little too close. And I am too aware of how very seriously these things turn out. Women have been hurt. As you know, Dana Rivers, women have been murdered. Um, April, her hand. You know, when I hear about these things happening to women in America, in the United States, who do radical feminist events, I know these women. Like, I know April. I know Lear. I've seen them and, and shared food with them. And to see them be attacked and harassed and just harangued out of just the very basics of speaking to other women, you know, it, it enrages me on a personal level in addition to a political level. So I don't organize locally in Portland so much anymore. Um, the last event that I helped organize was in spring 2021, where I helped organize the Women Picket DC event to save women's sports from infiltration of transgender identified men. And that was in Washington, DC, which is a beautiful 3,000 miles away from Portland. So I felt more confident to be able to be a part of that effort in that sense. Mm-hmm. But I have sort of backed off event organizing um, people like, you know, Kelly J. Keene and, and Wolf, which I was one of the early people who helped get Wolf off the ground, get their events going. That's the Women's Liberation Front for anybody who doesn't know. But um, their earliest events and press releases and activities before they were a nonprofit, specifically 501c3, 
was in 2012, 2013, in response to these transgender attacks on the RADFEM conferences that we were putting on here. Now, wonderfully, it's grown to really take on this transgender issue in so many more ways. But I didn't want to follow Wolf too hard down that because I really want to fight prostitution. And I, I kind of resent that these men won't let me do that, that they won't let me just get in a room with other women and talk about how do we stop the sexual slavery of our people that just keeps going like it does. And so though I don't do that, what I do, do I, I do continue writing. I still write articles. I still contribute where I can with my words. That's what I have. I continue putting effort into women's friendships because mm -hmm. that's important on that personal level. You know, reach out to that person you haven't spoken to in a couple months. This is where the world is transformed. It's hard doing organizing online only because people don't know each other. But when you've met each other and you've seen each other, it makes such a difference to the cohesiveness of your movement. You can get together for an individual action online, but if you want to build a sustainable movement that builds and builds, you need to have women's friendships. You, you, you can't just make it all business. You, you need to like the people that you work with. You know, or find people you can like if you're not liking the ones you're working with right now, you know, but keep at it because your people are out there. Definitely. I continue to give anti-porn slideshows. Uh, the last one I gave was also last year. I gave a slideshow about the contents of Pornhub to Portland Now group, you know, just showing them how it's changed. It's not the playboy of your youth. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of strangulation, a lot of incest and very common, very racist which why do we let the racism of Pornhub continue when we stomp it out in other places? So uh, there are things you can do that are not always putting yourself in a tax way. Mm -hmm. And I've done those years and I have done that and I have taken those blows and I'm just going to take a little break now. <laughs> and I'm just going to work a little bit behind the scenes where I feel more comfortable until other women whose stores are not as depleted as mine have been over the past 15 years doing this. You know, and we need new blood and new women to come in. And I'm so happy to consult and help, mm. but to be the person at the front of the line, taking the brunt of it, there's only so many years a person can do that. I, I was just going to say like, thank you for what you'd say to like a veteran, like, thank you for your service, ma'am. Like, <laughs> this is like how I feel. It's like, no, but seriously, thank you for everything that, that you've done. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, where, I think where the, the, the move, our movement is at right now is um, needing to come back to, to strategy and, uh, and to really like go back to the drawing board because, I mean, we can't have what happened in New York. I mean, we can't keep doing that. That's that's not right to ask women to leave their families to to come and and to do that. It's it's so fucking scary. We're not trained in combat. We don't have, you know, very few of the women in New York had actual like self defense skills. I mean, we are not ready for what doesn't mean we won't get ready. We won't be ready eventually, but that like shit. That was my abiding sense, especially in Toronto. I guess for Portland in 2012, for the reboot conference, I was still a bit naive and still learning. And even though there were threats, I didn't think they'd really show up. I mean, I took mm -hmm. precautions, but I didn't think they'd really show up and they didn't. But in Toronto was the first time I felt the weight as an event organizer, as the director of that event, 
but I had invited women to a place that they were not safe. I said, hey, come to Toronto and we'll talk and we'll figure out stuff for women and feminism. And I feel like I put them in danger's way by inviting them there to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's not a comfortable place for me as an event organizer who feels responsible if somebody gets hurt at an event that I have coordinated because I can't prevent it. If women could prevent male violence by now, we would have. And so I, I took that very seriously. Sticking back into prostitution and the pornography, the things that I I know very well and I can speak to very well and not letting transgender politics pull me off of working for women that really need help getting out of the sex industry and working to teach men that there's better ways to be. Mm. And one of the things that I, I'm really proud of doing in the past year was um, there was an attempt to legalize prostitution in Oregon. And I've been involved with other attempts in other places to stop that. There was an attempt in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago to strike the anti-slavery laws that were prohibiting prostitution from happening because slavery looks so very much like prostitution that they had to strike those laws. That failed. I'm, I'm happy I worked with wonderful women and a coalition of people in D.C., including survivors who fought that, that effort. But I guess, you know, the pimp lobby has a lot of money and a lot of time. So a New York group decided to try and legalize prostitution in Oregon. And how they did it was they went through our local legislators. They found just this low level legislator who was willing to put forth a bill to legalize prostitution. And when I'd heard about that and I'd mobilized and I had a meeting and we did this now talk. And I'm really happy to say that we stopped that from happening here, but it didn't just happen. It was because we were paying attention and because I wasn't going to let that legislator get away with just selling the women of this state out. And I think for him, it was just going to be a bit of a cakewalk, you know, talk to the media a little bit, talk to the pimp lobby a little bit, no big whoop. Well, we made it a big whoop. <laughs> we made it a big deal. And the, the full abolitionist network came into action here in Oregon and said, oh, hell no, you're, you're not turning Oregon into an open air brothel. No. And so there are things you can do, even if you don't feel brave enough, to organize a whole event, meet with your local legislators. You, you'll get an impact. Your words will be heard. They may not like what you say, but you will be heard. That's awesome. That's amazing that you were able to do that in Oregon. And I can also understand why you want to stay there. You like, you know, like it's you want to like hold it, hold it down. I mean, I, I, I escaped New York to come to Texas and you know, we certainly have have issues here, but I mean, our speaker's corner was like three men circling us and we had private security. And you know, even I, I, I was on the production side of the Austin event at the library and it was scary. I mean, I can relate to what you were saying about feeling responsible for inviting women to like be brave. It's like, hey, come be brave. But like, actually be careful because it's scary. Um, mm-hmm. And we had a whole thing getting people out safely from the library, going through the parking garage. Like we couldn't let people out the front door. It was mm-hmm. too dangerous. And so everyone had to go through the parking garage. And these two men who came volunteered to kind of like ride the elevators up and down with the women. So, but yeah, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to hold. It's a huge responsibility. Um, and as the violence escalates, it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely, we're definitely in, in tricky waters, but is there anything else that we didn't get to that, that you wanted to speak on? 
I don't feel that your audience needs convincing that prostitution is a terrible thing that needs to stop. So I won't insult their intelligence with that because they know. <laughs> and it's hard to look at pornography, to speak on it intelligently, to speak on it like you know what you're talking about instead of some person who just comes in from the outside and just says, all bad, all bad. You know, I, I've seen those strangulation videos. I've mm -hmm. watched the changing content of pornography over the years so I can speak to it. And it will break your heart, but you do need to familiarize yourself, I think. Go to the front page of Pornhub. Go and see what is the front page content of Pornhub and think about it. And think about how that ties into the issues you care about, whether that's the transgender issue or domestic violence, mm -hmm. whatever, across the board. Something that has such a strong physiological reward as orgasm, like pornography does, is going to have a very strong impact on you as a person. You know, Pavlov's dog was just fed food. Can you imagine if Pavlov's dog was orgasming every time he was fed? Nuts. And what Pavlov could have taught that dog? <laughs> I think about that all. I use that example all the time. It's totally insane. It's totally insane. It's a real problem. And it's so hard to look at because it touches us all personally in such a deep way. We all have a sexuality. And of course, yeah. you know, my own life has been affected by this. I remember... There was a talk I had given. I was teaching classes in a community college. And after one of them, this one young woman came up to me and just told me the most horrific story of her gang rape. And I, I was pretty messed up for like a week. And, yeah. and in front of her, I kept it together. Mm -hmm. You know, I was listening and there. But inside, I was dying a little bit. And I, for like a whole week, I was really depressed and just sad. And I was like, I know why people don't look at these things. Yeah. I know why people don't want to hear the woman who was gang raped and don't want to hear the details of what happened to her and how many condoms they pulled out of her at the hospital and that sort of thing. You don't want to hear, but my God, if we are going to survive in any humane way, you need to see those stories. You need to see what's happening. Find the strength. Don't wallow in it, <laughs> but find the strength to look at it. Oh God. Fun stuff, huh? What do you think is going to happen to us? We survive. That's what we do. Okay. As long we as persevere. You, as long as you think so. Okay. I'm feeling a <laughs> we keep chugging along. You know, everything changes. Nothing stays the same. Whether it gets better or worse, yeah. I think that's alternating. You just hope the gains of the better times are better than the losses of the worst times. Mm. <laughs> At least that's how I operate. Because it all changes. It, it will never stay the same. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or family member who needs to hear this content. And if you do share it on social media, don't forget to follow and tag me at whose body is it. So until next time. <laughs>